ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Crazy Cults and Where to Find Them. I'm your host, Colin Wicker, and today we'll be diving into the murderous and money laundering commune, Angel's Landing, led by Lou Castro, also known as Daniel Perez, based in Wichita, Kansas. Unfortunately, it has nothing to do with the rock called Angel's Landing out in Utah, but this is mildly interesting as well. This commune caught federal attention by alarming boosts in money and lose bacon count after mysterious accidental deaths. Of course, with me today, I have Dr. Nick, an expert in cultish activities, and a couple other guests that we'll be introducing later on. So, Dr. Nick, let's define what a cult actually is. Yes, of course. Thank you for having me. Um, so, the term cult gets thrown around quite a lot of these days, especially in pop culture, uh, seeing all the crazy devil-worshipping uh, cults and whatnot. But in reality, a cult is a little more difficult to categorize. And so at this point, there, there are usually seven good signs for uh, determining if something is or is not a cult. So the first right. one is uh, opposing critical thinking. So basically what will happen is the leader of the cult will make sure that cult members are not able to really think for themselves and therefore they're uh, more easily controlled. So is that by like forcing them to do like hard labor and so they just don't have time to focus on it or how do they go about doing that? Well, it, it could be hard labor. It can also be there are many different uh, brainwashing techniques and, and whatnot. It really depends on the cult for uh, how the leader goes about doing that. But if there is some sort of um, opposal to critical thinking or brainwashing or anything like that, uh, it's usually a pretty good indicator of it being a cult. Right. So then the second uh, the second sign of their possibly being cultic activity would be isolation from society. So uh, to make it easier to control uh, a cult will usually keep its members away from the rest of the society, whether that's physically in some sort of commune or even uh, in like information wise, um, telling them the media can't be trusted and keeping news of the outside world away from members. Okay. Uh, number three would be uh, emphasizing special doctrines outside of scripture. So uh, creating their own rules and uh, their own way of life and elevating that to a status of importance that uh, is, is not typical in uh, other forms of uh, like lifestyles and whatnot. And then you made this specification outside of scripture. So does that mean it's like a perversion of other scriptures? Uh, we, we are getting there, yes. Um, but there are many cases where cults will actually deviate, uh, take like deviations from other religions so that there is at least some sort of uh, place where they can start their beliefs. Um, so that is very common as well. Uh, an another sign would be uh, the dishonoring of the family union. Uh, so basically, you everyone will keep together. Uh, the cult members are close and disassociate from anyone else. Again, similar to separation, uh, keeping away from other people who are not inside the cult. And uh, biblical boundaries and separation of church uh, kind of fall into the same category, but again, uh, a lot of the times cults are based on Christian beliefs because it is one of the most popular religions. So, um, them, sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. Uh, 
them riffing off of those beliefs is the best way for them to get new members and to sort of uh, recruit. So uh, these are all signs of cultic behavior. It's not always, you know, devil worshiping or uh, crazy ritual sacrifices. It, it can be, but there are also a lot of nuances in determining what a cult is. So before we get started, I just thought it would be a good idea to clear all that up and make sure we're all on the same page of what the definition of a cult is. Of course, of course. So it, correct me if I'm wrong here, yep. but what you're saying is that basically a cult is any kind of belief that is centralized around one person and focuses on separating people from what they're used to or what they know, whether that be their current beliefs, that be their family, that be luxuries of the modern day. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty on par to uh, what most modern uh, definitions of a cult look like. Again, uh, there's still some debate of uh, what can be considered a cult, and it's hard to classify, but that is the the closest uh, you can get to a definition of what a cult is and how they work. All right, well, thank you very much for that. So for our first guest today, we have Sam McGrath, a key witness in the case against Luke Castro and a former member of Angel's Landing. Yes, okay, so Sarah, how did you first get involved with Angel's Landing? Um, so the way that I ended up getting involved with Angel's Landing was through my mom. Um, my mom was a realtor growing up, and she first met Lou Castro when she was showing him houses. Um, I remember her telling me how charming and rich he was, but also that he was a little bit helpless, and she just had this like desire to want to care for him and you know, take care of him. And, you know, he told my mom that all this wealth that he had came from owning cattle and trading stocks. And did that end up being what it was? Uh, no, we will find that that was definitely not the case. All right. My mom was also obsessed with angels, as most good Christian women are. And the closer she got to Lou, he eventually told her that he was a dying angel here on Earth. And in fact, that he had multiple personalities. Um, some of which were Michael, Daniel, Lou, and Amber. He told us that he could protect the people around him and tell the future, and he could even tell us when we would die. This was pretty much enough to convince my mom that she needed to follow him. So to me, this already sounds like uh, some cultic activity in, uh, as you said earlier, Colin, the manipulation of religious ideas. Uh, so again... Uh, it's usually Christian, and we can see that here with Lou as he uh, convinces your mother that uh, he was an angel. Especially so again, using names like Michael and Daniel that were from right. the Bible. Yeah, so already it's it's looking like there are definitely some cultic uh, aspects of what you were a part of. Uh, so let's continue and see what else. Um, so eventually we moved to Wichita with to be with Lou, and my mom was actually the one who helped him purchase the land that would become Angel's Landing. Um, my sister and I were a little bit wary of Lou. We ended up actually leaving our father because um, he just was not with this whole Lou Castro thing. He didn't feel comfortable with it. So my parents ended up getting divorced. Um, so we were, you know, very afraid, a little bit wary. But our mom told us that we could really trust Lou and that we should not be afraid at all. Dr. Nick. Does that sound like separating families, or is that just a circumstance that happened? Yeah, uh, I think you're catching on a little bit, for sure. That's definitely a separation of some sort of um, 
family or to other societal members uh being told that you're the only one that uh or that lou lou telling you that lou's the only one you can trust or should trust is definitely a separation um from other people and so again it looks like there's another uh cultic aspect going on here all right so sarah when you arrived at angel's landing what was it like there um, when we got there, we were quickly introduced to everybody, and it was actually a very small group. There was only eight people. Um, one of the first people we met was Patricia. Patricia. She was Lou's right-hand woman, and she was basically like a second mother to us. The thing about Patricia is she actually backed up all of these stories about Lou, and she told us that she had seen him do all of the things that he claimed, including bringing animals and people back from the dead. So, again... Uh there's more, uh, a lot of the times at a cult, there will be um, people who, to sort of uh, bolster the reputation or um, uh, the validity of a claim, there will be uh, other members uh, who will kind of validate the leader and talk about past events, even if no one else has been there before. And so it seems like this is, again, what's happening with Patricia, who... Um, agrees with Lou's claims and will even back it up with evidence, even if that evidence is not true and total fabrication. So, Dr. Nick, do you think that Patricia was in on it being a cult, or do you think that Lou had convinced her that he also was an angel? From what I've heard so far, it does sound like Patricia might be in on what's going on. Now, of course, she could be being as manipulated as well. Maybe she doesn't know all the way, or there's some underlying um, mistrust or lies going on. But just from what I've heard so far, it does sound like Patricia might have been sort of bolstering uh, Lou's reputation and helping him in his uh, control of the other members of the commune. All right, so now for our, our next guest, we have Officer Ron Goodwin, who is a local sheriff in the Wichita area. What brought the commune into your sight in respects to the law? Well, I'd have to say the first thing that brought the commune into my site was all these fancy cars that started pulling up into our town. There were Lamborghinis, Denali's, all sorts of cars, just one after another. And they all seemed to be owned by this one people group that only had one or two people that worked in the area. For us at the sheriff's office, we just couldn't understand how these people would have all this money laying around and seem to work fewer hours than the average person. That usually, usually in the uh, in the Justice Department, that leads to drugs or other illegal activities. So this was really a big red flag for us and led us to really look into this commune. So you didn't initially think that it was anything cultic. You just thought it was some people that were selling drugs or some other illegal activity. Yeah, I'd have to say that was definitely our first our first perception. So the, this money, uh, Dr. Nick, do you think that it could have been a reason for the cult, or do you think it was just Lou wanting to be manipulative and this was something that came from that? Well, I think that money definitely could be a factor. Um, usually there's some sort of financial gain or other sort of gain that uh, a leader of a cult will get from followers. I mean, there's, there's always a motive, and most of the time, unfortunately, it is financially. So, again, looking at this, seeing how much money um, they have in all of these fancy cars, 
Uh, it definitely seems like that could be a motive. Now, how they got that money, again, we're, we're going to find out, hopefully. But um, that definitely does seem like it could be some sort of motive for Lou and the reason he's doing all this. Okay. And so once you got settled into Angel's Landing, Sarah, how did life continue at that point? Was it just normal or were there things that happened there? Well... For the most part, when we first got there, everything seemed fairly normal. Um, but the longer we stayed, Lou would start having these family meetings. And this was something that we just despised having. He would get up there in front of us. He would yell and scream. He would, you know, verbally abuse us, tell us that we were, you know, horrible people, and that we were sinners. And he would even threaten us with his angelic alternative personalities one of his personalities, Amber, was the angel of death, and he would threaten the children and tell us that if we kept misbehaving, Amber was going to come get us, and she was going to drag us to purgatory. So it was things like this that he would say to us that would just scare us so badly, and it was so confusing to us because our parents would praise us like he was a god. You know, I mentioned earlier, my mom told me I could trust him, that he was caring and kind, but, you know, to the children, he would just so abusive and angry and evil, and it was really hard to understand. So at, at this point, is that all the abuse was, was verbal? No, at first it was, but then one day everybody was out of the house, and it was just me and Lou, and he ended up kind of cornering me and you know going on his rage, telling me how horrible I was. He told me I was ruined and broken, that I was bound for purgatory, but that he could save me. And by save, how did he plan on doing that? The way that he thought he could save me was by raping me. Um, I was only 17 when he first raped me. He told me it was the only thing that could fix me. And that if I told anyone he would try to find my father, and he would kill him. And I, I know it wasn't just me. You know, when my sister Emily turned 11, he did the same exact thing to her. So that's, of course, horrible. I can't imagine anything like that. So, Doc, is that, do you think, is punishment? Do you think it was trying to manipulate them, or do you think that was some sick, twisted fantasy of Lou's? Well, it could be another motive of Lou's. It could also have been uh, a form of brainwashing or uh, just breaking the mind, making it easier to um, control people. Uh, the more people go through suffering, you know, uh, there's a lot that can happen. And um, there's, there's typically a technique that is called love bombing, where essentially uh cult members and the cult leader will just like bombard new members with like affection and then um all of a sudden it'll be taken away and they crave that affection again and will want to listen to that leader and want the affection that they once had so it could be almost uh, a form of that with uh being told how great lou is and then the juxtaposition of the horrible things he's done um could be a technique to kind of uh, control people or assert um, dominance in some ways. So basically he just wanted to have other people build 
his personality to be up bigger than it was and then him himself break down that this expectation just to leave people in a confused state well it's to leave people in a confused state to make them vulnerable and of course to uh, grow his power because in the end uh, a lot of this has to do with um, being the most powerful there and so um, people do terrible things to assert power of course they do unfortunately and so in, in the eyes of the law, is this what brought attention to the cult? Or was there something else that brought the attention to it? Well, in June 2003, uh, we got a call from little Emily. And uh, Patricia had slipped and fallen. And um, by the time we got there, she was dead floating in the pool. Um, what we were told was that Patricia's baby had ended up in the pool somehow. And uh, Emily had watched Patricia go in and try to save the baby, but she had somehow hit her head. And um, Emily was able to save the baby, but Patricia was just too big for little Emily to pull out of the pool. Um, By the time we got there, it was far too long. Um, Patricia was only 26 when she had died, and um, all her insurance money went to Lou Castro. How do you know how much that insurance payout was? It was hard. It's hard to tell exactly how much it was, but um, it was a, it was fairly close to a million dollars. That's a lot of money, but I guess life insurance on a healthy twenty-six-year-old, I guess that, that would do that. And now, in, in the eyes of the law, did this bring up any old cases that maybe has come to, come to mind? We didn't make the connection until quite a time later, but um, there seemed to be a similar situation connected to this Lou Castro uh, back in 1998. And I already have done some research on this, and from what I saw, Lou was living in Texas and met a girl named Mana, and she moved into the commune. And her and her daughter, Lindsay, also moved in with Lou in South Dakota this time, not Kansas. And in 2001, Mona and her new husband took their daughter on a birthday trip. And her new husband was a private pilot and owned a Beach Baron, which is a twin-engine summer plane, pretty much. And while they were flying over Colorado, there was something that went wrong, and the plane crashed, and... It was found weeks later with no survivors. The NTSB looked over it, and there were no mechanical problems with the plane, but there were no survivors, of course. And oddly, the landing gear had been put down, but no flaps had been extended to slow the plane. And so it suspected that it was because of bad weather that they crashed. But on Mona's obituary that Lou published in the local newspaper, it read... Rapid City, Mona Griffith, 38, Lindsey Griffith, 12, James R. Chase, 50, died February 19, 2001, in an airplane accident near Norris. Mona is survived by one son, Cody Griffith, Corpus, who lives in Corpus Christi, Texas, one brother, Lou Castro. So, and from this, Lou received the insurance payout, which is odd for the brother to receive the insurance payout. Is it not? Yeah, it is. It's quite odd for the 
brother to receive the payout, especially because um, Mona and her family were survived by one son. Exactly. And so would this have any relation with Patricia's death, the way things happened? At first, we couldn't really see a connection. Um, later on, we'll talk about how we finally made that connection with some information down the road. And so was Patricia's the only death at Andrew's Landing, or were there other things that came up or other people that died that eventually brought attention to the commune? Sadly, no. Um, so a couple of years after Patricia had died, around March 2nd, 2006, um, Patricia's husband went on a vacation from the commune. He went down to South Carolina, where um, in one of the shops he was working on this car. And he was a pretty experienced car mechanic, but um, from from the reports, it just looks like one of the jacks slipped and he ended up crushed under one of the cars. And so he didn't have any of the regular security measures you would have in place, blocks under the car or anything he would just having it held there by the jacks from the reports is what that's what we found to be true that's rather unusual you would expect a mechanic to do that is there anything that would indicate he was trying to commit suicide or that he was killed himself well from the phone records we ended up finding this strange call from brian just before he ended up dying um he called his young daughter and decided to say goodbye to her which, this is an unusual call, especially for a father who's just on a small trip from a commune. Yeah, you wouldn't expect just on a short trip to see family that you would die unless you were planning to do something. Another point to this, um, just after Brian died, um, his insurance report, also, all that money ended up going to Lou as well, same as Patricia's before him. That's rather suspicious. Is it possible, Dr. Nick, that this is some form of manipulation that Lou was able to get Brian to commit suicide for the good of the rest of the group? Or Absolutely. I think it is uh, totally possible. I mean, thinking about how, how much influence he would already have over people, uh, he's already gathered them to live in this commune, and uh, there's already been death uh, in Brian's family. He's probably already in mourning. Uh, I don't think it would have taken too much for what he would have seen to be an angel coming to him and telling him it's time. Uh, so I think, uh, especially with the past history and now starting to get a little more of an understanding of maybe what Lou's up to, it's definitely plausible that uh, Lou convinced Brian to commit suicide. Interesting. And uh, Sheriff Goodwin, is there any like time frame that these deaths would happen? Is there a pattern anywhere? Well, the first detail that we missed after Brian's death was the actual balance for the commune itself. When you, we went back and looked at the records, we realized that around the two and a half to three year mark, the commune would begin to run out of money. And by the time the commune's budget was lowering and lowering and ended up lining up with the deaths almost perfectly. First with Patricia's, which replenished that bank account. And then again with Brian, he ended up, he passed away and the coffers were immediately full for the commune again. 
that's a little suspicious, wouldn't you say? It's indeed suspicious, and it really got me worried because I knew that I was on a time frame to figure out what was happening. And so then when the bank account started to get low again, did some, did this pattern continue? Sadly, it did. So Sarah's mother, Jennifer, she was on her way to work one morning and just swerved out in front of her truck, absolutely destroyed her car. There was, She was killed almost on impact. Um, and from reports of witnesses who watched this event take place, it's not like she blew a tire. Nothing happened to her car. She just drifted out in front of the truck. And so when Sarah found out about this, she was obviously very upset by this and said in a different interview. Then about five o'clock, Lou comes downstairs and he says, Jennifer's been in an accident. And I said, she's dead, isn't she? And he wouldn't answer me. And that really pissed me off. So I go running behind him and I said, what did you do to my mom? What did you do to her? So after the terrible death of Sarah's mother, um, what started happening in the commune? Because their members are obviously dwindling and there's not many new members coming in. So what was going on there? So the first order of business is we needed to find out who this Lou Castro was. Every time we looked up in every database that we could think of, we could find nothing on this mythical leader, Lou Castro. So um, we tried many different times to get, whether it was DNA samples from their trash cans, we even had a team take photographs of fake wanted people in the area to Lou to have him look through them. But um, our team noticed something very odd when we went to try to lift these prints. Um, Lou Castro seemed to know exactly what we were thinking. So you think he was already on to you? Absolutely. He took these individual photographs, and the whole point of this this photography uh, way to get the fingerprints is that when the person touches the film on the photographs, it leaves a print, a very easily liftable print. But when we handed these photographs to Lou Castro. He used just the palms of his hands to handle the pictures, and when he was looking at them individually, he used his fingernail and just swiped it lightly on each picture to make sure that he left no prints. And this really, really got to us. So was there any way you were able to actually catch him? Sadly, no. He slipped every single chance that we had, and then eventually he left Wichita. And if he left, where did he go, or do you, you know? Um, he ended up going over to Tennessee. And what did he do once he got there? He started buying houses just like he did in Wichita. That's, um, he just left, he dropped everything, sold the Angels Landing land, and moved over to Tennessee. So this, this new place, did he start doing the same thing again, or did he try and set up a life there? Did he open a bank account? Did he do anything that would lead to you finding him there? Well, at first, originally, we couldn't find any new bank account for Lou Castro. He just seemed to have left the map. But we ended up getting some bank footage of a different man, Joe Vegas. Joe Venegas was opening a new bank account in Tennessee. And 
it took us a couple of seconds, but we realized that Joe Venegas was the man we were looking for, Lou Castro. And how did you find out that that was Lou Castro? Did he bring somebody from Angels Landing with him, or did was it just facial features, or what was it? Well, at first, we had lost everybody in the commune, but um, after a while, um, Sarah was dating this man named uh, Daniel um, McGrath, and he we got a phone call from him one day, and he was talking about all this rape and these terrible, terrible things that had happened to Sarah from this man, Lou Castro. And that had finally got the FBI in on this case. And they eventually led us to the bank footage in Tennessee. Okay. And so, obviously, opening a fake bank account in a fake name, that has to be some sort of serious crime, right? It, yeah, impersonating somebody is a federal crime, and it is actually what we first got Lou on before we could get him on anything else. Okay, so you were able to get him away from Angel's Landing and away from the people. So you were able to conduct your investigation about Angel's Landing itself. This also let us get his prints and and finally identify who this mysterious man was. And we figured out that um, Lou Castro was not indeed Lou Castro, but he was Daniel Perez. Okay, and so Lou Castro and Luca- Joe Venegas. That, that was it. Joe Venegas. So, Lou Castro, Joe Venegas, all of these people led back to Daniel Perez. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And now, now you know who he is. Were you able to catch him on any other charges that happened in Angel's Landing? Well, at first we couldn't catch him on anything. But um, the longer we'd had him in prison, the longer we had kept Emily away from his influence, we started learning some truly terrible things about what had happened in this commune. And thankfully, due to the prints that we were able to get from Lou, we also learned a little information about his past that led to the beginning of this whole Angel's Landing. Okay, so you were finally able to get him on charges that came from Angel's Landing. Absolutely. Um, Truly terrible, terrible charges involving... uh, Underage sex with children, um, rape, money laundering, just all sorts, just the entire book all came from this Lou Castro, Daniel Perez guy. Okay, and we actually have courtroom footage or audio at this point from his court case. Did you in any way plan to murder Patricia Hughes? No. Did you in any way plan to murder And so, of course, Sarah, you know, and I think all of us believe that his claims that he didn't do any of things are outrageous. Oh, I mean, they were absolutely false. And the day that they finally called us into court, you know, my sister Emily was able to provide them with all the evidence that was needed for them to convict him. And we were called into court um, and we got up on the stand, Um, that is when everything absolutely changed. Emily got up there, she told the jury about the years of physical and sexual abuse that she had suffered, and then the evidence that 
pushed everything over the edge. She told the jury about the day of Patricia's murder. And what was that evidence that she came forth with? So first, when we originally thought that this had been an accident, but we came to find out that Lou had taken all the members away from the commune and come back just with Emily and Patricia and her baby in the house. And he warned Emily that there would be a scream. And he went out and he killed Patricia Hughes, knocking her into the swimming pool, and came in and told Emily to wait a given time for him to get away from the commune and set up his alibi and to call 911. And she was so young, she didn't know any better. She just followed his orders. And Lou Castro made young Emily an accessory to his murder. So already at you know, five or six, she had helped him commit a crime. And, of course, he was charged for the rape of Sarah and Emily. Were there other charges there? Attempted murder, murder? So Daniel Perez ended up being charged with multiple accounts of rape, multiple accounts of murder. Um, he was charged for the $42 million in insurance fraud. Um, and then... He was also charged with um, using a child to become an accessory to murder and forcing these children to help him kill and take all this money. And so did he have any kind of defense for himself of why he did this? Was Did he plead insanity? Did he say he was possessed? What, what was his defense? So his original, his defense that he ended up crafting said that um, he had originally disappeared from Texas due to amnesia from 1997 when he was attacked by a gang of men. Well, that seems rather ridiculous. Oh, it gets worse from here. <laughs> he said that Patricia Hughes had ended up dragging him away and began calling him Lou Castro. He also said that he couldn't have raped anybody because he had been beat to the point where he could only have consensual sense, consensual sex. That, I don't know what to say to that. That's just ridiculous. There's no medical reason for that. Did he have anything to defend himself other than insanity? This was all that he could come up with. So he must have at least gotten a good, a good lifetime sentence. In the end, Daniel Perez was charged with three life sentences and an option for parole in 120 years. And hopefully he'd be long gone by then. Hopefully, indeed. So, Dr. Nick, ultimately, is this a cult? Is it just a really weird commune? What was what, your opinion on this? Well, from what I've heard, there's definitely a lot going for it being a cult. There's all of the, uh, there's definitely a motive, first of all, uh, financially. There's plenty of uh, manipulation of the members. Uh, there's uh, plenty of uh, mistrust and certainly shady things going on. The one issue I see, again, and it's not, I don't think, enough to overrule it being a cult, is just that there's so little we know about this uh, commune because it was small. Uh, there are very few people there, and the few people that were there are almost all gone at this point, being killed by Lou himself or uh, any other ways of dying. So just due to the fact that it's so few people and um, 
there's so few, like little bits of evidence and story um, does kind of make it harder to classify as a cult. But I think in the at the end of the day, I personally would consider this a cult just due to the amount of manipulation and the religious aspects that were brought in uh, and so on and so forth. All right, so we can definitively say here that Angel's Landing is a cult. All right, well, thank you guys for listening to this week's episode of Crazy Cults and Where to Find Them. If you enjoyed the episode, please follow us on Spotify or SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really enjoyed, maybe support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash crazycults. And thank you for listening.